When the influence of private capital exceeds that of a sovereign state, it raises an important question. Where does real power reside? Increasingly, it seems, money makes the world go round. At a time when stocks are overvalued, bond yields are flat, and property prices are inflated, private equity is where it's at. Indeed, since the chaos of the 2008 global financial crisis, PE firms have only grown in size and influence. Asia has been a key beneficiary, and China, until recently at least, has absorbed the lion's share of private capital. As and when U.S.-China tensions subside, the surge is likely to continue. In this week's episode of Inside Asia, I speak to one of the PE industry giants, Wei Jin Shan, chairman and CEO of PAG Group. Sean's new book, Money Games, the inside story of how American dealmakers save Korea's most iconic bank, is a tale on how deals get done in the convoluted world of big money and big personalities. It's been over 20 years since Sean and his colleagues at Newbridge Capital landed in Seoul to rescue Korea First Bank, but he tells it like it happened only yesterday. The transaction is epic in both size and circumstance. But it also speaks to the central importance of developing personal trust and accountability to offset fears of xenophobia and big money exploitation. It also speaks to the enormity of PE as a vehicle for rescuing distressed businesses, a point not lost in these pandemic times. I'm here with Wei Jian Shan. Shan, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you very much. I might start off by saying uh, you've lived quite an extraordinary life. And while we're here to talk about uh, um, your book, Money Games, I had a quick look at your first book, Out of the Gobi, which uh, talks about your time serving in Inner Mongolia during the Cultural Revolution. Compared to your life now as chairman and CEO of the private equity firm PAG, it's hard to imagine a wider gulf in circumstances. How has the experience as a young cadre in the wilderness informed and influenced your life? Well, you use the word cadre. That's the wrong word to use. I was there as a peasant laborer. I was a hard laborer. So I spent a total of six years doing hard labor in the Gobi Desert part of China, didn't have a choice. It was not a life that I chose. I had to do it. So in a way, I was exiled there. I was about to finish elementary school when the so-called Cultural Revolution in China broke out. So I was out of school since that time. And um, I finished six years of grade school And I thought that uh, we're just going to have uh, a vacation, but I didn't realize that that vacation lasted as long as 10 years. So for the next 10 years, there was no schooling. In fact, for the entire country of China, there was no schooling. The school system was shut, universities were shut, and I, along with uh, many of my peers, were sent to the Gobi Desert to do hard labor. When you say hard labor as an elementary school child, what what did that entail? We worked sometimes 14 hours, sometimes 16 hours in the desert, in the fields, to plow, to plant, to harvest all kinds of crops. As you can imagine, it was exceedingly difficult to grow anything in the desert. So we had to work extremely hard. We still couldn't collect as much as the seeds that we plowed into the land in the springtime. But every day, 
there was not much to eat. We starved all the time. In wintertime, it was extremely cold. We had to work on the frozen lake to cut reeds, which are or were sent to paper mills to turn into pulp. You have to carry very heavy load. And I recorded in my book at one time, I worked more than 30 hours without stop digging a canal. So all of those work was extremely hard. It, it, is this something that um, once you returned from the Gobi and, and you went back to your home, I assume you went back to your home, um, is it something that people discussed or did you just bury the experience and move on? Well, I have many friends from the Gobi days. They're still my friends. From time to time, we'll get together and we'll talk and we sometimes even laugh about the past. But with people who didn't share that particular experience, there's, of course, very little to talk about. How, how, did, it, how did it influence the rest of your life, Sean? What, what were the things that came from that? Or, or is, there, is it an, a more of an indirect link? As I described in my book, Out of the Gobi, I talk about the fact that uh, many of my peers didn't really survive that period of time in the sense that they were never able to get education since for 10 years there was no school, reading was frowned upon. So we were all deprived of a formal education. So after the Cultural Revolution was over, after China started to go on the path of economic reforms, open door policy, most of my friends, vast majority of my friends, without education, were not able to find a decent job, as you can imagine. I tried to teach myself when I was there, reading whatever books I could lay my hands on. And I got into trouble several times for doing that. So after this ordeal was over, I was able to get into a college, although at that time there was no formal degree system. And I studied English, and then I went to America after China and America established formally diplomatic relationship. And I got three graduate degrees in the United States, and I became professor at the Wharton School. So I think what uh, the Gobi experience taught me was you just have to seize out every opportunity that comes your way. But in order to do that, you have to be always prepared. Teaching yourself is part of it. Um, and then once you were in the U.S. and teaching at Wharton, an opportunity arose uh, for you to return to Asia. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yes. I was, uh, of course, that is described in Money Games, my second book. I was approached by a banker, a senior banker from J.P. Morgan. J.P. Morgan wanted to build itself in Asia and they needed somebody who understood Asia, particularly China. And I was a professor at Wharton, so presumably I understood something about business and finance. They made me an offer I couldn't refuse. It was far better than the salary you receive as 
a college professor. So I came to Hong Kong. It was a very unusual time, in a way similar to what we are experiencing right now. We're in the middle of global recession, except that this time is induced by the virus, by the lockdown, by the quarantine, and all that. In 1997-98, there was the Asian financial crisis. It was unprecedented since after the Korean War. It started in July, on July the second, with the collapse, the vast devaluation of Thai currency called baht, and then it spread to all other Asian countries. On October twenty third of that year, Hong Kong's stock exchange, the main index called Hang Seng, dropped. In one day, sixteen percent. So that gives you an idea of the severity of the crisis. So by the end of the year of ninety-seven, in December, Korea was among the worst hit countries in Asia. Again, just to look at the numbers, the stock market fell forty-nine percent. Almost half of its value from the beginning of the year, and the currency Korean won. The exchange rate with the U.S. dollars dropped sixty-five point nine percent. That is two thirds of its value. Now think about it. Whatever wealth the individual had at that time was wiped out by the stock market and by the currency market. Korea at that time was the tenth largest economy in the world. It was a member of OECD. As the tenth largest economy in the world, its foreign exchange reserves, its holding of foreign currency, dropped to eight point nine billion dollars. Again, just to put that number into perspective, my firm PAG. Of which I'm chairman CEO manages forty billion dollars for zero, and the tenth largest economy in the world at the time had only eight point nine billion dollars left in its coffers to pay foreign debt. At that rate, the Korean government would default on its foreign debt within probably about a week. You know, at the rate of capital flight at that time. Money was going out of the country every hour, and the Korean government was encouraging its citizens to sell jewelry and gold to help replenish foreign exchange reserves. So it was a time when all the banks in Korea were put under severe distress because many companies failed, and when the customers failed. Then of course their borrowings became bad loans, so many Korean banks failed, including the two largest in the country, and the government had to nationalize them. But with Korea on the verge of bankruptcy or failure to pay its foreign debt, International Monetary Fund and the World Bank came in, led by 
the officials from Treasury Department as well in the United States, they came in and provided a $58 billion rescue package for South Korea with the condition that Korea had to sell two of its nationalized banks because the idea was that all these banks failed and the banking system failed because Korea didn't really have a credit culture. Banks made loans not based on the credit of the customers, but based on relationships and government policies. So international multilateral agencies thought in order to fundamentally restructure the banking system of Korea, you will have to bring in foreign investors who would bring in a credit culture, international best practices. And that is why the Korean government engaged an advisor and sent out the invitations to all major financial institutions in the world to come in to look to buy one of those banks. And that's where we got involved. So a, a perfect storm, and there really was no alternative except to reach out to foreign investors. That, that was the, the last straw, as it were. Is that correct? That was correct. But, but as you can imagine, we were talking about failed banks in the failed economy in the middle of the worst economic and financial crisis. So there were very few takers. There are very, very few parties interested in even looking at these banks to buy. And, and in there, you draw a distinction in your book between investment banking versus private equity, which is still a relatively new concept, and uh, some of the struggle that the Koreans had in understanding the differences between the two. Uh, the Korean government strongly preferred to sell the banks to a global financial institution, that is another bank. On the theory that uh, a good performing bank, such as HSBC or Citibank, the only two which showed up at that time, would know how to manage banks. I think 2008 would prove them a little bit wrong. <laughs> Well, all these banks got into trouble as well. But the presumption at that time was, and it was a correct presumption, that these banks will bring in best practices, how to manage risks, how to develop a credit culture. So Korean government has strong preference to sell the banks to a bank or to some banks. But as I described in the book, I mean, there were two banks interested, but their conditions were so demanding and stringent that the Korean government simply couldn't accept. And we were the only other interested party as a private equity firm. My firm at that time was called Newbridge Capital, which was affiliated with TPG, a private equity firm based in San Francisco. And later in 2007, we changed the name of Newbridge Capital to TPG Asia. But at that time, it was called Newbridge Capital. So we went in there to negotiate with the government. 
Why did you go in when everybody else stayed out? What did you see that the others did not? But that's a very fair question. When I first received the news by reading a teaser sent to us by Morgan Stanley, which was engaged by the Korean government as a sales advisor, I was very dubious. And I did say, as I describe in the book, you know, who would buy a failed bank in a failed economy in the middle of the worst financial crisis? I actually said it in September of 1998, when I was there with my partners in New York City. But my other partner, Dan Carroll, reminded me that our senior partner, David Bonderman, acquired American Savings Bank in the middle of America's savings loan crisis, if you remember, in late 1980s. So he was very familiar with buying a failed bank and suggested that we ask him if we should be interested in looking at these Korean banks. And very characteristic of David Bonderman, he responded the next day with the facts. And he says, among other things, the history of life shows that if the deal is structured right, this is as good time to buy a bank as any other. So that sent me off to Korea and we started the negotiation. Yeah, and, and at that time, Newbridge was still finding its feet, was it not? I mean, um, you'd had struggles in China, some deals had not gone as planned or they, they never came off. What was Newbridge looking to make its mark and was this looking like an interesting way to do it? No, it was never the purpose to make a mark. Of course, every deal we do, we wanted to make money. We have a fiduciary duty to our limited partners, that is our investors, most of which are state pension funds, corporate pension funds, large financial institutions. We have a duty to them to make money. And if we don't make money for our limited partners, we will not be able to stay in business. The reason that we have stayed in business for so long is because we have made very good returns for them. But I just joined Newbridge Capital at that time. We were in the middle of raising our second fund. And you asked the question why we went to Korea as opposed to, say, investing in China. It's, it was because largely China was not affected by Asian financial crisis. The reason was that China's capital market was closed. You know, there was foreign exchange control. So China didn't borrow much foreign capital at all. Even today, China is probably the lowest indebted, foreign debt indebted major country in the world. It's foreign debt by the central government at this moment is only $20 billion. That's half of the capital that PAG, my firm, manages. And China's GDP is about $15 billion. So it's almost nothing. Right. So at the time, China was not in trouble. There was no capital flight. There was not much foreign borrowing uh, at all. So the asset prices in China remained quite high. 
whereas asset prices collapsed all over Asia, in Korea, in Japan, in Southeast Asia. So we thought that Korea would be a good place to buy assets if we can structure the deals right, if we can manage the risks. So even though we were raising our second fund, we knew if the deal is structured right, we would be able to raise capital from our investors, our limited partners, because all of them have very deep pockets. Hmm. But this was no easy deal, was it? Uh, your, your you know, uh, book, it reads like a playbook and calls out the extraordinary level of complexity, personalities, uh, negotiating grit required to pull it off. So here's my question. Is, is the story reflective of just how difficult it is to do deals in Korea as a foreign entity? Or were the circumstances unique given the Korean government's precarious financial situation? In other words, in documenting this, what is the message you're sending to people who are in the game, uh, looking to invest, looking to invest in Asia? So it's not unusual for a large buyout transaction to be very complicated and to take a very long time. But in the situation in 98 and 99, as we were negotiating to buy this nationalized bank from the Korean government, these circumstances were also quite unusual. Before that time, Korea never really opened its market to foreign investors. Korea developed itself largely through borrowing from foreign countries, through debt, as opposed to, you know, like in the case of China, inviting foreign capital, equity capital, to come in. I think the assumption by the leadership in Korea was to leave the upside to the Korean public or populace as opposed to giving to foreign investors. So Korea was almost forced to open its market to foreign investments. And it was the first time Korea allowed a foreign investor to come in to come in to buy the control of what used to be the largest bank in Korea. So the deal received much attention in Korea. Every day, the media would speculate on the progress. The public paid great attention because billions of dollars were poured into the failed banks to bail them out. You know, they had depositors money and therefore the government had to bail them out in order for depositors to get their money back. So the Korean government was very careful not to do these deals too cheaply and they want to get the best possible deal for the government, for taxpayers, for the public, which is totally understandable. And they had not done transactions like this before. So every ste step of the way, you know, they had to be very careful about what they, they wanted to do. So both parties had to fight over every issue. Of course, we knew the risks that we were taking that almost nobody else would take. Eventually, we were the only one. I talked about HSBC, I talked about Citibank, neither of them 
eventually was able to come through <laughs> to do a deal in Korea. We were the only one. And we were taking risks that nobody else was willing to take. And we had a responsibility to our own investors to be extremely careful. And that is why negotiation was very difficult. Sometimes it was on the verge of breakdown. Sean, you're very humble in the book when you refer repeatedly to the fact that you weren't a private equity expert. You were an academic who had come in, an economist, somebody who had insight. And, and you even refer to one point your role as being uh, chief negotiator, uh, leaving some of the, the, the details, financial details, to your colleagues. At what point did you realize that this was your forte, this was your strength, being able to um, understand some of the needs, concerns, personalities, and uh, adjust accordingly? When, when did you see that this was the role that was going to make the difference? I have to tell you that in private equity, if you think you know everything, then that's the beginning of your fail. <laughs> you have to be very humble because the world is complex, it's always uncertain, and there's always new things to learn. Well, the thing that came out for me was it's as much about reading people as it is reading spreadsheets. You had to anticipate as they were shifting out and changing out the negotiating teams from the Korean side, you had to make adjustments. There were individuals that were open and willing and others that were more circumspect. Obviously, there are uh, you know, concerns about foreign investment and xenophobia at some level, I'm sure, entered in. But th that's what I picked up from reading this, that, that you were, there is something essential in being able to understand, see people, address their concerns in a thoughtful way without giving up the game. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like what, what were some of the, because in, in doing this, uh, Sean, it does strike me that you're telling the reader something about the process of doing an effective deal. It's not just about this Korea First Bank situation. You're, you're trying to articulate, from what I'm reading, something about you know what good deal making looks like. Am, am I right with that? That's absolutely correct. I think the idea is this is a story about private equity. This is a story about how private equity people put deals together. And I think you raised a very good question. When you deal with people, either in private equity or in any business setting, I think the most important thing is to be able to establish trust between the two parties. It will be very difficult to cut a deal if there's no trust between the two sides. And if the other side keeps changing teams, then it's very difficult to build a trust uh, it takes time to build trust. So I related the story in the book, which you probably would relate much better than many others since you live in America and you lived in Asia. When I lived in America, I used to buy gifts from my wife on major occasions, her birthday, Christmas, and all that. And when we came to Hong Kong, I stopped doing that. You know why? <laughs> because in America, you could go back to the shop to get a refund if you make a mistake. 
And very often, I make mistakes. You know, things I buy for my wife, she doesn't like. She will bring them back to get a refund. So when I make purchases, I don't worry about not being able、uh, wasting the money, not being able to return the merchandise. But Hong Kong's policy for retail shops is generally no return, no refund. So I was so fearful that I would、uh, make a mistake, so wasting money, and my wife would not be happy about it. So I stopped giving her gifts. You know, she would just do the shopping by herself. So when we were negotiating in Korea, I thought we couldn't make progress because there was not enough trust. The government side was afraid that they would make a mistake. They we would take advantage of them. So I made the promise. I said, you know, whatever we say, there's no refund. I'll keep my word, even though it's not written down. But whatever you agree to, if you feel you have made a mistake, you can take it back, even if you have written it down. So you established that upfront, Sean. That's something that you said in the opening, or you tested those waters with some of your early on negotiations. No, it was in the、uh, after a few months of negotiations. I've all of a sudden realized. That the reason we couldn't make progress, even though we thought we offered the best possible terms to the other side, was because the other side was afraid of making mistakes, understandably so. You know, they were representing taxpayers, and the public, and they were government officials. Of course, they had to be very careful. So I thought of this refund policy because I thought of my experience doing shopping for my wife in America and in Hong Kong. And it actually worked, right? They were much less hesitant to agree to something. And on one occasion, I remember only on one occasion, maybe two,、uh, we did. You know, they did come back. Actually, I recognized that uh, uh, I persuaded them to do something, but、uh, that was wrong. I was wrong. So I went back to say, you know, it was my mistake, and、uh, it was a term, of course, in our favor, and I gave it up. So I think that's how you build trust. Once you build trust, then negotiation becomes much smoother. But that sounds to me like、uh, Sean, the deal maker. That's your integrity speaking, as opposed to、um, a conscious effort to be open and transparent. Um, which is a negotiating tactic. Which was it? How much of this was you versus how much of it was a structured approach to doing the deal and using certain tactics? You see, in business, I think integrity is everything. This may be one transaction, but the reputation that you leave behind or you establish on this transaction will stay with you forever. And if people don't like you, And the market will know. So I think I make a conscious effort in this regard, as my partners do, all of us. But I think that's how you stay in business as well. Now, of course, in the negotiation, it's like playing poker. 
across the table, you don't reveal all your cards. So it can't be completely transparent. And as negotiation goes on, you can't be transparent with the public either because you have not reached the agreement. But to the extent possible, I think it would help build the trust by revealing your assumptions, your thinking, to the extent possible. That's what we try to do. Hmm. The timing of your book is interesting, too. Here we are in the middle of another global economic crisis. Asset values on many major businesses have plummeted, uh, like the 1997 Asian financial crisis. Does 2021 mark a renewed buying opportunity for large-scale PEs? I think the circumstances are very similar. And I think what happened at that time really had an impact on the present day as well. See, if you think about it, in 2008, 2009, there was a repeat of a financial crisis only on a larger scale this time when the global financial crisis started from the United States with the collapse of Lehman Brothers and then Bear Stearns, then AIG, then all the major banks, including Goldman, Morgan Stanley, and City and Bank of America went into trouble. So it is now called global financial crisis. But it was not so global at the time from our perspective. Why? In Asia, none of the banks failed during that crisis, whereas in America and in Europe, many banks failed. Why is that the case? Because all the Asian countries learned a big lesson from the Asian financial crisis of 97-98. And they shored up the balance sheet of their banks, recapitalized them, brought in risk management systems, and brought down the bad loan ratio. So when 2008 came, all the Asian banks were in very good shape. But American banks were not prepared for this and that's why so many banks failed. So this time around, the recession is probably as bad as any time after the Great Depression, as we know. And some, to some extent, it may exceed it, the Great Depression. But any banks got into trouble in the United States? No. In fact, they're earning record profits at this moment. None of the banks got into trouble in Europe either, even though the economic growth rate this year can be down double digit, more than 10%. So why is that? And that is because all the banks, all the regulators learned a big lesson in 2008 and 2009. Banks were recapitalized, the risk management was enhanced, and, and all that. So all the banks are now very well prepared. Imagine if they had not been prepared. Imagine the pandemic happened in 2008, and then the economic consequence would be vastly greater than what we're seeing today, right? So you learn from every economic crisis, and then you would uh, improve you know, how you deal with the crisis 
And, and that's, uh, that's why I say that uh, the Asian financial crisis that I describe in the book has relevance to this day. Of course, in the crisis, there are always buying opportunities, but you have to focus on those businesses which are not permanently impaired, which actually have a good chance to either bounce back or to grow in the future. Well, you're the first person who's been able to show me the silver lining in the global financial crisis. So I thank you for that. I, I, I see what you're saying. And uh, oftentimes, uh, you know, banks, particularly American companies, American organizations are faulted for failing to learn from those mistakes. But I can see I can see your point. L- let me ask you about um, your thoughts on the state of private equity today, 20 years on. You were there in the early stages. How has the industry in Asia evolved? Um, what are some of your hopes and some of your concerns? The industry has become very, very big. The Newbridge first fund was just about $100 million. Then we grew from $100 million to 450, 750, $1.5 billion, and then $4 billion. And we thought that was a huge number. By the time we got there, around 2008 or 2009, uh, sorry, 2007, right before the global financial crisis. But today in Asia, some funds like KKR are raising $10 billion fund just for Asia. So the market has become very big as well as the amount of capital you know, in China, I think right before Asian financial crisis 20 years ago, you will have to struggle to find investment opportunity requiring say 30, 40 billion, uh, million dollars, 30, 40 million dollars. Today, you can easily deploy a billion dollars in one single transaction because the companies have become very large. You know, this Chinese uh, financial institution called Ant Financial is going public in Hong Kong, as in Shanghai. And the rumored IPO valuation for the company is $30 billion. And uh, this company has been around only for about five years. And yet its market cap is going to be much larger than JP Morgan which has been around for 150 years, which is global. So now the market can take a lot of capital. And there's also a glut of capital coming into the market. So that's the difference between today and 20 years ago. And, and that's been a problem for a while, hasn't it? Too much money chasing too few deals. Um, has this crisis and the devaluations that will follow created new opportunities for some of this capital? Yes. What we see is maybe worldwide that's the case, but in Asia in particular, a polarization, polarization of performers. They're good performers, they're bad performers. So limited partners or investors now tend to concentrate their capital with good performers. It used to be the case 10 years ago that they would spread capital with a number of GPs or what we call general partners, that is private equity firms. Now I think they pick the outstanding performers and give them more capital and stick with them 
stay with them for many, many years to come, uh, generations of funds. So even though there's a lot of capital, I feel there are fewer players in the market. <laughs> I, I think that's a good thing. Hmm. There, there's the the performance, but then there's this new pressure point uh, called ESG. Are you seeing that start to change the way that capital is being deployed in this part of the world, or not yet? Yes, absolutely. The answer is yes. ESG is a major thing for all private equity firms. I wouldn't say it's pressure. I think it's a very good thing. Because from the very beginning, our philosophy, our policy is to do good and to make sure to the extent we know what is good, we will do good. For example, we stay away from tobacco. We stay away from gambling business. Uh, we stay away from polluting business, even if we know that we can make money out of those businesses. In the past, it was just our policy. You know, different people have different policies, and we just thought that's a good policy to follow. Nobody told us, you know, that's the right thing to do. See, when I was in the Gobi, one thing that I hated most was poker. Why? I saw how many of my friends wasted their lives by playing poker after a day of hard work without reading anything. And I spent all my spare time reading. And therefore, after the ordeal of many years in the Gobi, I came out, I was able to go back to school. I was able to resume my studies, whereas most of my friends were not able to do so because they spent all their time playing poker. So I just hate poker <laughs> with my guts. And that's why I hate gambling. So, you know, it may be just yourself, but uh, now LPs, limited partners, are very focused on ESG. I think that's very good. You know, we can do good and feel good by ourselves, but to have a social impact, everybody will have to do it. Hmm. Hmm. What advice might you give to other private equity players trying to make sense of the Asia market, uh, negotiating deals? Um, and, and I'm just, just as, and I don't mean just from identifying a good opportunity. I mean, in terms of navigating the process of cutting a deal, coming to an agreement, is there anything that stands out for you that you could share with others? That's a big question. <laughs> Because there are so many things that you have to keep in mind. But I think there's a big difference between the American market and the Asian market, by and large. See, America, there's a high trust. You know, America is a high trust society. I was thinking of uh, Fukuyama of Rand Corporation. He wrote this book about trust. And he looked at the trust levels in different countries. And America is one of the high trust societies in the world, as Germany, as Nordic countries in general. I think the trust level in Italy is lower. In China, it's very low, as in India. In the high trust society, 
your brand name and your reputation probably don't matter too much as in the low trust society. For example, many of the deals, major deals that happen in the United States are through auction process. To the seller, whether you're KKR, you're TPG, you're Blackstone, you're Carlisle, all of them are about the same. They all can do the same thing. So you can just conduct the auction to sell to the highest bidder. In China, not so. The trust level is so low that if you have not established a brand, a reputation, people will not work with you. The same is true in India, right? So you have to build a brand. You have to have a track record. You have to have shown that you have made money for your investors. You have to show that you're responsible for the business that you invest in. You can bring it to the next level. That takes years to build. So in Asia, brand becomes very important. Your reputation becomes very important, which you don't see so much in America and in Europe. Hmm. Mm. You know, it takes me back to the example uh, in your book, um, Korea First Bank, and Newbridge did not have a brand, or and there was very little understanding. It was new to the market. But then it sounds like you stepped in and filled that with personal brand, personal style, created uh, a, a type of um, level of trust um, at a personal level that then allowed you to move forward. Would that be accurate? At the time... I was not conscious about building the brand because I thought private equity is not a retail business. It's not consumer business. And there's no point of building a brand. And I actually thought we prided ourselves for operating under the radar screen. So we were low profile. We're not trying to gain any publicity at all. But of course, the deal for this major Korean bank put us on the map. And later on, I realized how important brand is. And in fact, even today, the name of Newbridge is no longer used. We changed name of Newbridge to TPG Asia before I left TPG. And uh, even today, when I meet with some people in Korea, in Japan, in China, in Southeast Asia, after, let's say, uh, you know, five minutes conversation, some people will say, ah, you are the Newbridge guy. <laughs> so they still remember Newbridge. And that made me regret that we gave up the name of Newbridge because it took years to build the brand. And I only became conscious of the importance of the brand name maybe just about 10 years ago. Sean, I want to thank you for taking time out to speak with us today and wish you the very best. Thank you so very much for having me. That was my conversation with Wei Jianshan, chairman and CEO of the Hong Kong-based private equity firm PAG Group. He's also the author of two recent books, Out of the Gobi and Money Games. My conversation with Sean left me with a few thoughts and reminded me of the devastating effects of the Asia financial crisis during the late 1990s. I was working in Indonesia at the time and watched as scores of well-laid commercial plans fell by the wayside. 
Entire industries were upended, and currency devaluations in Indonesia and across the region destroyed years of economic gain. By comparison, Korea's problems felt remote to me. If there's a silver lining in the crisis, it's this. The country's banking practices at the time were unsustainable. Sean writes, and I quote, political and personal connections rather than business considerations led banks to favor the government's picks when it came to lending. Bad loans at the height of the crisis represent 25% of all loans. It was only a matter of time before Korea First Bank would be forced to reconcile. The Asia financial crisis brought the situation home to roost. An IMF bailout, national shame, and the advent of selling off its leading bank to foreign interest formed the backdrop. Enter Newbridge and the prospect of private equity. Where there is private equity, there is risk. And according to Sean, his firm, Newbridge, was prepared to assume that risk. It would prove a bold move for a relatively unknown private equity firm, and as Sean discusses in his book, it wasn't necessarily the Korean government's first choice. They might have preferred a more conventional buyer in the guise of a global bank. HSBC and Citibank came courting, but for them, the financial risks and political nuances were too much to bear. Private equity oftentimes gets a bad rap, and is partly deserved. Many a company has been purchased, dismantled, and sold off to the highest bidder in the name of profits. The Korea First Bank deal had its own unique set of circumstances. Sean cast Newbridge as a white knight, and to some degree it was just that. But it's also easy to see that the Korean government had few choices. I guess you could say they deserved it. Had they been adhering to more conventional banking and lending practices, perhaps they wouldn't have needed rescuing at all. It speaks to the power and influence of big money. Not even the IMF had enough funding and influence to help Korea turn the corner. Its $58 billion rescue package, one of the largest ever, still came up short and left the country with barely enough foreign reserves to stay afloat. It was under these circumstances that Newbridge came to the rescue. When all was said and done, the firm turned a nearly $500 million deal for a 51% stake into a $3.3 billion sale to Standard Charter just five years later. That's a solid return on investment. You might argue that, given the risk, it was a fair deal. But it was the Korean government and its taxpayers that took the biggest hit. How bad would it have been if Newbridge never came in? Maybe worse. So the best we can do is see private equity for what it is, a force in the world and one to be reckoned with. If you're in the business of private equity, or even if you're not, Money Games offers a rare glimpse into the world of high stakes, big bucks, and even bigger egos. No doubt, there's more where that came from. That brings us to the end of this episode. If you like what you hear and want to listen to more, please subscribe to Inside Asia wherever you search for and download your podcasts. Until next time, this is Steve Stein saying, coming from the outside on Inside Asia. Inside Asia.